Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, All of you, I'm sure, go to many Hay events and literature events all over. And I'm sure you've never come across an interlocutor saying he hasn't read the book. (laughs) And that's simply because Preeti Taneja, who's our star today, she just finished it two days ago. (laughs) 600 pages of it. But such is her fame that she was selected for Hey 30. And I'd like to say this event is supported by the Case Foundation. It said so somewhere earlier. The book is called We That Are Young. And it's reimagining of King Lear in today's India. I suppose in the light of social and economic developments, the situation in Kashmir and so on. Now, a little background about Shakespeare and India, if I may. Please. Uh, India's most popular playwright is William Shakespeare. He has been forever that. A lot of films are made. I think Preeti is familiar with uh, Vishal Bharadwaj's three movies. There was Othello was made as Omkara, Macbeth as Makbul, uh, Hamlet as Haider. Romeo and Juliet, of course, was made, made many, many times because Bollywood loves romantic stories. But the real breakthrough came in a film called Kayamat Se Kayamat with Amir Khan was made because uh, in that both lovers died. Because Bollywood also likes happy endings. So (laughs) all all the Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet lived happily ever after till this film was made. (laughs) Now we've had Shakespeare in dance form. Macbeth was done as a Kathakali performance. Hamlet was done by as Yakshankana. In Midsummer Night's Dream, we had, in the forest, all the fairies were dancers. Uh, Shakespeare has also been completely translated into Hindi in, in, that, in the verse form, free verse form. Someone's also done a, a, a reading of Shakespeare, a staging of Shakespeare done by clowns. Uh, Hamlet, the clown prince. So you see, there's a lot of innovation, and Shakespeare lends itself to that. Surprisingly, but perhaps not surprisingly, King Lear has not been done very often. Uh, Amir Khan did something called The Last Lear. And someone's done a play which says nothing like Lear. So why did you think of writing a book uh, based on Lear? Well, first of all, I should say that um, I was born in the UK and I grew up in a British Asian family, so a very traditional Indian family in some ways. But um, in my outside world, 
I went to a Catholic school. I grew up in a very small town called Letchworth Garden City, which is sort of halfway between London and Cambridge, and it's a very genteel kind of place. So I was surrounded by um, two kinds of culture all of the time. And for me, when I first came across King Lear, and like many people in this country, I did it for A-levels, and I had the most amazing English teacher who just inspired me with this play. And as I was reading it, I, I was looking at it, and I was seeing, at the very beginning, a king who divides a kingdom. And suddenly, someone was talking about partition of land in a way that was being talked about in my own family, but not in the outside world that I was moving in at all. So that was very striking to me. Um, and the second reason was that in that division of the kingdom, which, as I'm sure you all know, is done by a love test between daughters, there's this sense of setting these girls against each other, where this patriarch is doing something which is very similar to divide and rule, which is what the empire did to India during that colonial period. And so suddenly, for me, it, sudden it just became an Indian story, as if Shakespeare had sort of been in my house and seen what it was like to grow up in a sort of Indian family where girls are supposed to ex obey their fathers and answer when spoken to. And, you know, I'm not trying to paint a horrible picture of my childhood because I had a very happy childhood. But in my wider family, I so could see some of these So your father wasn't currents. asking you to prove your love? Well, I think parents can ask us <laughs> to prove their love in different ways. Like in Indian families, I'm not alone in saying, you know, there's the party after dinner where you come and recite five, your five times 13 tables to all the guests, right? To show that, you know, you can do maths. And this is supposed to be a measure of how wonderful your, your upbringing is. So there's that sense of performing your gender identity um, or, you know, you can recite the alphabet backwards, which is something I had to do. Or learn how to spell uh, it complicated words to show that, you know, you could be this intellectual person who could fit in. So for me, the Lear story was very, very personal, but also very political and has to do with Indian culture and history. And you didn't have to prove anything to your mother? Well, my mother was an extraordinary woman, and um, I lost her when I was 28, but she was an entrepreneur, a businesswoman, and um, if you ever had a samosa or a spring roll from Sainsbury's or Tesco's in the 90s, it probably came from a factory that she started in our kitchen. So, um, yeah, she, w she was uh, someone who wanted us to prove to her that we could do anything. Um, and she set us that example, me and my sister. So tell us a bit about the book. Uh, obviously, no one could have read it. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Even and and there will be no books, book signing at the end either. <laughs> okay, so the book is published by the wonderful Galley Beggar Press, who you may have come across for books including A Girl as a Half-Formed Thing uh, by Emma McBride, um, France, How to Be a Public Author, which is a kind of Bible of mine, uh, by Francis Plug, uh, Paul Ewan, and it's a hilarious book. It's coming out on August the 10th, um, around the time of the anniversary of Indian independence and the partition of the subcontinent. Um, it's written in five voices, and it's called We That Are Young because India is one of the world's fastest growing democracies, and it also has a very large and growing population of young people. So I think it, there's some statistics that... It's like actually uh, probably uh, one of the world's youngest nations. Right, world's youngest nation. Yeah. So that means almost 50% of people are under 25 or under 35. I can't quite remember the exact statistic. 
the last line of King Lear is, um, we that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. And for me, those words really set responsibility on young people to look around them and decide what kind of future they want based on what's already gone before. So that really fits perfectly, that sort of rising sense of energy and the democracy um, that's supposed to be unfolding in contemporary India. So you have five sections of the book, yep. and there are five voices, all young Indians. <laughs> so can you just take us through that? Sure, briefly? so the five, the five young people are based on the five young people in the play, and they are three daughters, the Lear daughters, and two sons who people tend to forget about, but actually they're really pivotal to the plot of King Lear because they have this parallel storyline whereby um, Gloucester, their father, is a very faithful lieutenant of Lear's. You're talking of Edgar and Edmund. Edgar and Edmund, Edmund right. Yeah. So the book is divided between um, Gargi, Radha and Sita and Jeet and Jeevan. So there's five young people. And I wanted to do it like that because I feel like that sort of structure gave me the opportunity to really explore different identities, um, different kinds of young people. Everyone's, everyone's got their own thing that they're, that they're working on. We've got some, someone who's an environmentalist, someone who has, is forced into being a businesswoman. She wants it, but it's very difficult for her. Um, and the character who's the closest to my heart is actually gay. Um, which is the Edgar character, Jeep. And he is a person who's very much divided in his sense of self. Um, being gay in India is currently illegal, which um, wasn't always the case. For a, for a short amount of time, it was decriminalized. And when the current um, prime minister came back in, uh, came, got in, it was recriminalized. So that sense of human rights and freedom of expression and freedom of sexuality has actually gone backwards. And that's something the book is very much concerned with. And you've used a structure which is uh, linear yet circular, right? Right. How do you do that? There is a kind of poetry in Shakespeare, uh, a poetic, what, what, what some scholars, Shakespeare scholars call poetic justice, that's in the very text of the play itself. So when you have the fool saying lines which seem to prophesy a future that hasn't yet come, obviously, from a, point, from a standpoint light years ago, he says, this prophecy Merlin shall make, for I live before his time. And in those lines, there's a sense of social justice that is both linear and circular, because he's coming back around to something that's going to happen, but he's also seeing ahead. And for me, that spoke very much to um, certain aspects of Indian culture, certain aspects of language. For example, in Hindi, the word kal, which we use for yesterday and tomorrow in a loose translation, is the same word. So we're standing in this present moment, and we can look forwards and we can look backwards. One day from today is tomorrow, but one day from today in the same word is yesterday. That's why Indians are always late. <laughs> well, <laughs> as you say, <laughs> maybe so. But, right. <laughs> but, but, the, but for me, to capture that sense of linear storytelling with a sort of circular sense of how our past never leaves us alone is really important. And so the story is told in these five voices, which is this relentless forward movement of, of the plot of King Lear. And if you know the play, 
you'll be able to see that. But also there are, there are sort of sections interspersed which are told from Lear's standpoint and they're in a fixed moment which you catch up with right at the end of the book. So I've got that sense of linearness and circularity as well. Why don't you read us a little bit? You'll sit here or go there? No, I'll stay here, actually. So I'm going to start with a section um, from the Devraj character, and he is King <coughs> Lear, and he's sitting in this broken wooden house in Srinagar in Kashmir, which is a state which has been um, the, the focus of a conflict that's been ongoing for the last 70 years between India and Pakistan, and the, the people on the ground have suffered um, for seven decades. My name is Devraj. Mine is a simple story. Come closer if you can. The day Ranjit's boy came home from America, I watched him pick about the place, look into the gardens, the sports grounds, and the stone yard. It was a time fit for kings. What a beautiful place that was. Months have passed since that hot time. Now, in the death days of autumn, I find myself in Kashmir, the land of milk and honey. Ah, Srinagar, Shingari, city of wealth. The great emperor Ashoka named it thus. Life is good. I have brought Sita with me to open my new hotel. The Kashmir company is my most beautiful property. It sits on a hilltop waiting for us. We will go there soon. Sita wanted to see this old house first, and though I once swore I would never come back here, I cannot say no to my daughter. So we find ourselves wandering through these five stories of broken, rotting wood. I can sense the jellum, mud-colored and sluggish below, a snake disguised as a river, changing direction as it wills. There used to be a jetty where vendors would try their boats and sell cut-price saffron, tea, bootleg cigarettes. Now, the stench of stagnant water rises up. The wooden house is falling down into its own reflection. It's very dirty all around. Somewhere outside, the city goes about its business, wrapped in shawls against the biting cold. Here the market, there the shrine. The tulip fields are fallow, waiting for spring while bees make honey and reeds make boats and the world keeps turning, turning. Simplicity is life on the water, no fixed earth. I think I'll stop Lovely. Thank you. Read some more. <laughs> you want me to read some more? Yeah. Okay, do you want me to read some more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. fine. Yeah, so as you can see, it's basically on printouts. It's not even a, in a book form yet. I cannot remember the last time I was here. These days, I have to work to catch the exact moment, the begetting of forgetting. Forgetting is always there, a slippery fish, blind with teeth, it gapes and nibbles. Sita? She does not answer. Dust floats around the place, but there has been a kerfuffle. There is a crater in this floor and I can see through it to the next. My young manservant is down there, lying on his front. His neck is twisted at such a strange angle. I think he must have fallen and be dead. Maybe Sita went down to fetch the tea, 
No, of course not, it's not possible. Now I'm getting confused. Confusion, the bastard half-brother of chaos. Chaos, the torture instrument of forgetting. Where did she go? For a while she was asleep here, then she ran off. She loves to play hide-and-seek, catch-catch. Now is not the time, I told her, for I am telling my story, and mine is from the heart. It is the most important through all the ages of my life, the best, the most learned men have told me this. Nevertheless, I have learned that all should be judged by their speech acts. So here we are, talking in circles on floorboards, threatening to crack. Where do you learn to write? <laughs> I learned to write <clears throat> by reading. And um, Shakespeare was obviously such a big influence on me from a very early age. Um, in our house, we had a, we were, we, it was full of books, and it was full of books from two different kinds <coughs> of cultures. So I grew up with you know, Midnight's Children on the Shelf. Um, Irish women writers were very inspirational to me. My mother traveled a lot, so she would always bring books back from all over the world where she had um, been so that we could get a sense of how people were expressing themselves. And she was very much interested in women's writing. So she put, you know, different kinds of texts into my hands. I think my first real book love was Jane Eyre. Um, I used to have a friend at school who would sort of do an impression of me running around the playground going, you know, have you read Jane Eyre? <laughs> I, was that, I was that child, and I think um, a lot of young women are. Did you speak English at home? Um, Hindi was the language of intimacy, so my mother would scold us in Hindi, and she would love us in Hindi. She would do lullabies for us in Hindi, and we would cook together in Hindi. But in, to all intents and purposes, English was the language we administrated our lives in, and certainly the language of my schooling. And which language do you think in? Oh, gosh, that's a difficult question, because the book is... No, but that's all, it's a very important question. It is, yeah. You know what language you speak? Because most of us from India speak <coughs> at least three languages. At least, yeah. uh, English is a common language, Hindi, then the language of the state. Like Mumbai is in Maharashtra, we speak Marathi. In Ahmedabad, which is in Gujarat, you speak Gujarati. But you speak the other languages too. Yeah, but so then there's a the language you think in that. I think the, that kind yeah. of, sorry, but that kind of dictates your thought process. Yeah, the language I speak in is honestly English, and, um, but with sort of eruptions of Hindi and a bit of Punjabi thrown in there as well. It's incredibly difficult for me to separate out um, those moments, especially when I'm feeling very, very emotional. <laughs> right. And you think of yourself as uh, British or Indian? I don't think of myself as either British or Indian. I feel like, the, I feel like with, when it comes to this kind of nationalism, it's really important to me from the reading I've done and the kind of writing I'm interested in to count myself a citizen of the world. And I just absolutely refuse to say, I think of myself as British or as Indian. And for me, it's not a double identity, it's a dual reality. And I feel like the world is always trying to make us choose where we belong, 
in terms of our passports, in terms of our nation states, and they're trying to put a, a, and a kind of culture that's trying to make borders in our minds where we feel like we can't go to places and we can't cross. But I don't want to live like that, and I don't think literature lives like that, and I don't think that people read like that. So that's the answer to the question. When India. I wish everyone thought like that. That's why we write and that's why we read, right? right. <laughs> when India plays England in a cricket match, who do you support? Oh, gosh, <laughs> no, no, no. Competitive sports, no, no, no. I'm the book child. <laughs> no. Oh, evading the question. Yeah, no, I don't watch cricket. That's the answer. Okay. <laughs> you have said uh, in your introductory notes that... Uh, this particular book explores Shakespeare's interpretation in light of human rights abuses. Now, uh, that's a little uh, strange to me. I, I haven't thought of Shakespeare as being a champion or otherwise of human rights. Well, obviously, the way that we understand human rights in the modern world isn't the same as the way in which it was understood in Shakespeare's time. And King Lear is certainly a play that was influenced by its moment of production. It can't not be. All writing is like that. But when you begin to look at the characters and what the play itself forces them to be, nearly all of those characters must confront an other both within themselves and within society. So you've got the king who becomes the beggar. You've got the rich boy who's pretending to be a poor boy. You've got a daughter who's forced to become an exile. You know, all of these characters have to, have to meet the other in themselves. And I think that as that's the sort of structural empathy which is asking us to imagine what we would do in similar situations. And Lear's own realization when he gets onto that heath and he says those lines, which if you've ever seen the play done in a theater from the amateur dramatics right to the National Theater or the Globe, I have taken too little care of this. And it's this moment of heart-wrenching realization that somehow, because he's forced to confront himself on this heath, on this blank stage often, it's performed as, it's not performed outside that often, he has to come to terms with his own sense of responsibility. And because we empathize with him so much, because it's just such a beautifully written character, it forces us, I think, to do the same. Um, and he does that, and Shakespeare does that to all of the characters in that play, actually. Even Cordelia, who's often considered to be this very good girl. Um, for me, Cordelia acts as a kind of escape artist. She, she gets herself out of there. She flicks this domino that causes all of this other stuff happen in the play. And the literally last words she says when she's about to be taken, she knows to her death, are, shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? People have interpreted that as a kind of, shall we not like shake our fists at them and point our fingers at them and say, look what you've done. But I think, and I have a sister who I love very much, but I fight with a lot, that that's the sort of moment where she just wants to make that connection of sisterhood again. Shakespeare reminds us that through these characters that no matter what social constraints are around us, we strive to be better than the times. And that's something I really wanted to capture in a book. You've been uh, involved in human rights advocacy and so on, right? Yeah. And so you, as a journalist, you went to Iraq? Uh, no. Um, I, for the last 
10 years um, before I started working on the book. Um, I was working for, as a human rights advocate and I traveled and I covered Iraq. So my focus was really on minority rights. So Christians, Yazidis, Mandaeans, all of these smaller communities in Iraq which have been really suppressed by the conflict which was you know, started by the US-led invasion in 2003. And I traveled to Jordan um, and Sweden, who, who have taken a number, a, a huge number of refugees uh, from that conflict and from those communities. I've also worked on Shakespeare plays, which are being done by people in conflict zones and post-conflict zones. For the last two years, I've been traveling around, working with actors and directors and young people on the ground, who are making the plays in their own languages, often in response to whatever is happening to them. So. Zatari refugee camp, which is on the Jordan-Syria border. Um, I went there to talk to young people who had done a version of King Lear in Arabic themselves with a director who's from Syria. And they did a little performance of it for me. I've never seen anything like it. I'm sitting in this bunker on the floor in the heart of this refugee camp where people just who are visitors, they don't usually go because there's a sort of press area where you're kept safe and people are brought to you to meet. But because I'm a sort of researcher and I work a little bit independently, I was able to go in there on my own with the director who had worked with the children and meet these kids for myself. So I'm sitting in this bunker and they're serving me coffee and dates as if it was you know, the best Syrian drawing room situation. And these children come into this bunker a year on from when they had done the performance, and they did it for me again. Um, I've never seen anything like it. They were word perfect, and they still had the costumes that they used. It's very, very difficult to keep clean a paper crown in a refugee camp. So that's the kind of uh, work I've been doing for the last couple of years on culture and the life of culture. But that was done in Arabic? Yes, it was done in Arabic, yeah. So uh, translations exist? Yes, yeah. And how did the children relate to something like Shakespeare, which would be, one would think, so remote and so, so almost esoteric? Well, I mean, you know, is Shakespeare that esoteric? I think we can all understand what it feels like to be daughters and sons and, and be put under pressure by our families to do and be certain things. Um, for the children, the play was stripped down to um, 45 minutes by the director. And um, there were about 13 of them that were cast in the leading roles. And there was 120 children who actually took part. Um, they sort of provided a soundscape with their mouths because obviously they don't have musical instruments. They provided storm noises. It's like <laughs> and, uh And they were the 100 knights, which are very important to the plot of King Lear. Um, they got it, you know. They've left everything. They've got nothing. But they still have their joy in play and they still have their um, desire to, for self-expression. Um, as the boys sort of told me, you know, we can't play football all day long, and the girls don't play football at all, so doing theatre in those situations gives them a gateway into being someone else for a while, um, and there's applause at the end. I mean, what could be more positive? That's wonderful. Yeah. Was there any th other place where you went to where this was happening? Yes, I've been to um, Kosovo and Serbia, which was with an adult theatre company where Romeo and Juliet was being done by actors from both sides of the Balkan conflict. And that was something that was very important to me 
because I was 16. Are you saying uh, Romeo was from one side and Juliet from the other? Or? It was less, yeah, it was that the, the, the play script itself was written in both languages. So it's in Serbian, it was also in Albanian. They're half the actors, well, 17, seven and a half actors came from Kosovo Albanian community. Seven and a half actors came from the Serbian side in Belgrade. One of the actors obviously had a Serbian mother and an Albanian father. <laughs> so he was the guy, he played Friar Lawrence and the whole play turns around this character, Friar Lawrence, who is trying to knit these communities together by performing this marriage. Um, the script itself was written in the two languages and anyone who knows about the Balkan conflict will know just how controversial it would be for Serbians to start speaking Albanian in Pristina, where that language was completely subjugated um, under, under the rules of the conflict and the way that ethnic cleansing worked out there. Um, for me, it was a very personal project, that one, because I was sort of 16, 17 when that conflict was going on. And um, the, the, the director and the actors who were in that play, they were the same age, were the same age. So while I was having my GCSEs and doing Romeo and Juliet at GCSEs, they were learning to be underground fighters. Um, they were having a parallel system of education. The Alba on the Albanian side, they couldn't go to mainstream school. Their parents were banned from being civil servants or working in, um, in, in culture, their languages were banned. There was no Albanian on state TV and state radio and so on. And for them to then be, you know, 35, 36 and ma be making Romeo and Juliet, I, it, was a, it was a project I just found absolutely fascinating. Coming back to this question uh, of whether you're Indian or English, whether you think yourself as belonging here or there, you have set your book in India, right? Yep. Why did you set it in England with English characters? Because I wanted to, I didn't set my book in England with English characters. I think um, for me, there was something about exploring the past and exploring the links between India and England, which give rise to why people are born in the UK from Indian backgrounds or Pakistani backgrounds or Bangladeshi backgrounds. And Shakespeare, which you mentioned, um, is the favorite play of India. But one of, the, one of the reasons for that is because Shakespeare was taken to India as part of the colonial civilizing mission. And that's very well documented, that it was a way of civilizing the natives and creating this class of people who are Indian in blood and color, but English in taste and sensibilities. As Macaulay's very famous minute on Indian education has it, that's from 1835. And for me, I really, because I have both influences, and I had a very classical education in this country with King Lear for A-level and Romeo and Juliet and so on, it was my way of using Shakespeare as a kind of key to work out some of the underlying ways that identity gets formed in the place that my parents came from. I think that's the most clear answer. I hope that makes sense that I can give. We must thank the empire for Shakespeare. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah, I think we must thank the empire for Shakespeare in some ways. Um, there's plenty of people who think that it's on a par. For example, Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore, who was a great fan of Shakespeare, and he was, you know, the Nobel 
prize-winning poet from undivided India in 1913, the first foreigner, as it were, outside the Western world to win the Nobel Prize in literature. He was a great fan of Shakespeare. Um, he said that, you know, from the beginning, Shakespeare's plots entranced him because of their complexity, because of the way that the characters worked. And yet, as independence came closer and closer in 1947, he began to fear that Indian playwrights and Indian poets were being left behind and forgotten because of a, of a, of a love of Shakespeare that was taking over. Tagore, by the way, was a very, very bad playwright. <laughs> are there any Bengalis in the audience? Uh, yeah, I how many not, people are you Because remember? I'll be assaulted. He said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, what you're saying and what I was talking about, uh, Shakespeare being really the playwright for the world, right? And you described two situations where the last thing you'd imagine would be a Shakespeare play being done. Uh, would for me settle the argument whether Shakespeare, uh, we, we remember Shakespeare more for his language or more for his plots? Because we are talking of different languages, we are talking of uh, these plots being so important. So I, I, I would think Shakespeare is more important for his plots. When, you, uh, when I work with people who are adapting Shakespeare into their own languages, the question always arises, you know, what's so special about Shakespeare? Is it language? And once it gets translated, is it still Shakespeare? Because mm. once you lose that in English, to be or not to be, that iambic pentameter we all learn at school that, that gives us poetry, um, how can that be translated into Albanian or Hindi or anything like that and still be Shakespeare because it's not, you know, what he wrote? But somehow, the way that that language is part of our imaginations and it's part of the way that we speak, it just turns up in, even if we might not know what play we're referencing, we often use Shakespeare to express ourselves. People do it in the media and so on. So I think that the language just seeps in there all of the time, even in translation. Um, as for the plots, you mentioned that in Bollywood, until Kiamat Si Kiamat, um, there was... No, hap no, no sad endings. For Romeo and Juliet. Uh, no, Romeo and Juliet, yes. right. <laughs> but the truth is that in Sanskrit drama, there was a rule against tragic endings. So it's very difficult to imagine that, you know, two lovers could die and the whole audience goes home feeling down and depressed. That was just not the way things were done. And to start to understand that tragedy um, is something that can itself be elevating, I suppose. That's what. Shakespeare's plots have given to a particularly Indian culture, I think. Yeah. Now tell us uh, about this book which you delivered, I think, the day before you came here. Yeah. <coughs> 600 pages? Yes, 600. I think it's 600. Why did you need 600 pages? Oh, gosh. I know. Shakespeare <laughs> takes three and a half hours um, with Lear. I think it's because I chose to do it in this five-voice five structure. Um, obviously, um, one could tell the story from many different kind of angles. And Jane Smiley, if you've read A Thousand Acres, which is a King Lear story set in Iowa in the 1980s, um, she does it in a few less than I do. But she's telling it from one person's point of view. She's using Goneril, Ginny, in, the, in A Thousand Acres, and she's looking back 
Um, she takes on Adrian Rich's idea that the act of looking back of revision is a way of, of uh, reinscribing or retelling one's own story for oneself, and that's been you know, influential to me. But for me, I wanted to do something that had that sense of multiple voices. Once you start trying to tell the story from five different points of view, it just gets bigger and bigger. That's, that's, and, and a novel has to be written where you turn the page. It's not like watching a play, obviously, or watching a film where you can take in a lot of information from different points of view all, of the, all at the same time. Is any of the five voices yours? I think they all have a bit of me in them. Yeah, yeah. The one I think, it's difficult. I have thought about this, which one's most me, but since it's difficult that you have, I obviously haven't read it, so I, I don't want to give it away. <laughs> right. They're not very, they're not all nice people, so. Now you started the book uh, in 2010? Yep. And then you put it aside. Why was that? I started the book as part of a PhD in creative writing, and um, I did it at Royal Holloway, University of London, and I took two years to write the first draft, and that included a, a research trip to Delhi and to Kashmir, which would have been which would be impossible to go to now because the conflict is sort of flaring up again. Um, it went out to UK publishers, and um, it was just before 2014 to 2016, this great big Shakespeare commemoration began. And if you've missed that, then you must have been <laughs> on the moon for the last, you know, because it's just been huge. There's been Shakespeare rubber duck and Shakespeare not stirred cocktail book and, you know, so much memorabilia and so much commemoration, which is wonderful. But for, a, for an unknown writer from an Indian background of women to write this book and send it out in 2013, before we really understood, I think, what the rise of religious populism was going to do in societies from India all the way through to Trump. It just wasn't ready. It was the, the industry wasn't ready. Perhaps the book wasn't ready. I'm willing to take that. But, you know, it, it just needed to sit for a while until I had finished my PhD, done a bunch of other stuff that gave me um, a bit more perspective on what I wanted to actually do with the book and then send it um, out to Gally Beggar, who took it on um, two years ago now, yeah. Are you saying that your background, the fact that you're of Indian origin and that you're a woman were uh, an obstacle to publishing the book? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, I am, yeah. I think right now there's a big debate about diversity in publishing and that's one that we need to keep having. Um, I have young women coming up to me all the time telling me these stories where they say, oh, you know, I sent it out, but they told me that they had another... Okay, this is a story that happened to me. So, agent sends the book out. Agent's great. Love the agent. Fine. Um, lucky to have the agent. Feeling really good. At one point, it's a, second, a second version of this thing gets done when I'm still feeling like, I have to do this now in 2013. Um, and I was told that because they had another Asian woman author whose book was on submission to UK publishers, I would have to wait until responses came back from her, for her, before they sent mine out again. And I'm like, dude, this isn't UK immigration, you know? It's not one in, one out here. <laughs> What's going on? We're not the same person. We have not written the same book. We, I don't even know her. You know, we don't... What, how can that be possible that you could 
wait and be that kind of gatekeeper? And is the industry really that closed? Luckily, since then, things like the good immigrants have happened. Uh, Renia Dulodge, who was speaking earlier, she's talking about race and she's talking about mainstream institutions and so on. So this conversation is really opening up and I'm not going to lie to you. I de definitely felt like there was something in the feedback that had to do with who does she think she is? And I'm not saying that that's because of race, but I certainly felt that it was both race and gender. And I know young women who are not women of color who have had those kinds of responses in publishing too. Well, you're in good company, J.K. Rowling at two. <laughs> she, I don't know if all of you are aware, her Harry Potter books were rejected by a number of publishers. Yeah, that's who, true. Who probably have now all lost their jobs. But <laughs> and, and then she was persuaded by her agent to use the initials, yeah. J.K., instead of using her uh, name. So. Maybe there is a prejudice. Yeah, unfortunately, my initials are PMT. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna have that. Yeah, and this is being recorded, so clearly I've got no shame there. <laughs> well, PMT when I worked, who knows? So. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, it's like a bad case of hysteria, as King Lear might have said. <laughs> are you already thinking of your next book? Wow, I just finished this thing two days ago and it's absolutely enormous. Um, we still have the really exciting process of typesetting and, uh, and it's going to be out in six weeks. So, um, so yeah. So Will it be out uh, by 15th August? Yeah, 10th of August it will be out. Which is the 70th year of Indian independence. Right, so. yeah. Oh, good. So. Yeah, so next, next book. Uh, yeah, when I was um, traveling for my research, I had the opportunity to go to Sambalpur, which is um, a town in a state called Odisha in West Bengal. And it took a flight, a very long train journey, and a car journey to get there. So it felt pretty remote from Delhi. I had the chance to go up to the Hirakud Dam, which is famous for being the world's longest, I think it's Asia's longest dam. It's like this incredible, flat, glassy plain of water which has just submerged li livelihoods, it's submerged languages, it's submerged flora and fauna, and all sorts of things have happened underneath the surface of the water. But at the same time, because of that natural body being made to exist, it's done things like it's changed bird migration patterns. And uh, new plants have grown, and new kinds of um, animals have come to use it as their water source. So all of all sorts of things have happened because of the creation of this thing. And so it's just, and I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, it's got these two towers. One's called the Nehru Minar, Ga Nehru's Tower. The one's called the Gandhi Minars, and it was built as part of Nehru's five-year plans to industrialize India. And I think that you know um, these are sort of spaces where which are very fertile for fiction, and that's kind of where my brain's going, but we'll see. Good. I look forward to that. <laughs> Let's go to the audience for questions. Do we have a mic? Yes, we do. There. Thanks very much. Ooh. Thanks very much, Preeti. Um, Ravinda Barn from Royal Holloway, University of London. Hi, hi. Great to see one of our PhD students <laughs> doing so well. 
Um, you talked about gender in terms of your own personal history and experiences. I was just wondering uh, in what ways does gender kind of feature in your, in your book? And if you could comment on that. I know you went out and lived in India as well, as you've said. Yeah. So I just wonder if you could say something about that. I've always been really outraged, and I use that word in a Lear-like sense, where rage has to come out um, about the treatment of the daughters in the play and the ways in which um, Lear talks about women and their sexuality really resonated with me because it's a kind of shaming that just goes on and on. It's relentless, you know down from the waist, they're centaurs, they're women all above. And it's just this kind of sense that something has to be covered up all the time. Um, and, you know, in Indian society, you always have this sense of being watched. You have this sense that one should dress properly, one should smile, one should look down, eyes cast down, and just take whatever is <coughs> around you. You know, we've really crazy situations where recently on you know, social media has made this worse for women, I think, where um, I can't remember who the actress was, but it was in the news a couple of days ago. So she meets Narendra Modi, the current prime minister, and she's wearing a dress much like I'm wearing, probably much more expensive and nicer. Um, and she's wearing very, very high heeled shoes. And then a whole of Twitter goes mad because she's showing the prime minister her legs. <laughs> I mean, dude has legs, she's a girl. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how can you have that kind of moral policing? Um, that's what really, the book takes on. Um, the but, book but Modi didn't object. Well, I don't think he needs to do it himself for others right. to do it for him and to create the conditions in yes. which violence against women can just go absolutely underreported and unchecked. Actually, Modi has an army of people doing tweets right. and, and on social media. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe Trump should take a lesson from that. I don't know. They're quite similar in some ways. But the gender violence, like to get out, to get to get underneath the surface of that for me, I've done things in the novel. Um, I have a character who, I mean, the story of King Lear is got these two sisters. Two of the sisters fall in love with the same guy. Um, one of them ends up sort of having a relationship with him that's of, of a physical nature. And Indian women's sexuality is very rarely discussed in contemporary fiction or in any kind of fiction, really. So. By giving these characters each their own voice, I've been able to create women who have desire, and they have sex, and they masturbate, and they talk about their vaginas, and they say the word, the C, the C word, which I'm not going to say at you from the stage, um, but you know it's in the book because it's very important to me that we, that I as a as a woman, as an Indian woman, put that in 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 the in the public domain and 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 say those things. It's just biology at the end of the day, and I think that's quite a controversial um, stance to take as a writer. Well, we are going through, I think, a bit of a transition. Um, India was moving to a fairly liberal kind of country. Yep. And then the present government, with which in many ways is a contradiction in itself, because in terms of foreign policy, industrial policy, etc., is very forward-looking. In terms of history, moral values, looking back, and in a very aggressive kind of way. It is very aggressive. Yeah, extremely aggressive kind of way. And there's a huge uh, problem happening in India because of this. Yeah. Liberal voices are being stilled, and but of course, democracy still exists. Uh, what 
the liberal voices are still loud, they still speak their minds, but what the Twitterati does is to try and drown them out. And this is the battle we are fighting every day. Yeah, it's true. Right? Yeah. Um, freedom of speech is a real problem, and the ownership of the media and the messages that come out in the media is a real problem. Obviously, King Lear is a play in which silencing is such a big theme. Saying the word nothing can cause a furore. Saying nothing is a completely different level of subjugation. And so the book really is trying to expose that to the light. And I feel lucky in a way that I'm coming from this as a, as a person who doesn't have an Indian passport because I can't be censored in that same way by the social world. And, you know, luckily for me, I found a publisher who will stop me from being censored here as well. Um, so the book won't be, well, the book will actually get to you, readers, if you still want to read it after having had this discussion. But, you know, it, 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 it's, it feels like a very privileged position to be in. Right. Any more questions there? Hi, I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about the work that you've done with young people in the conflict zones and were mm -hmm. you researching and if so, what, what were you finding out about the impact that the Shakespeare, the, the productions had on sure. those young people? So when I work in um, conflict zones and post-conflict zones, I don't take a play out to young people and say, let's do Shakespeare. I'm not a dramatist, a dramaturg, a director. Um, I try to find projects which are coming from the ground up. So those directors or the young people themselves or the theatre companies themselves, they're, they're putting on the plays and I hear about them through Twitter or through friends or um, through bits of newspaper coverage and so on that I follow um, different journals in different parts of the world. And it's really important to me the difference between taking a Shakespeare play to a community and saying, let's put this on and whether or not that comes from them. Um, in every place I've worked, it's been for a slightly different reason that people have chosen the plays that they have and chosen um, to do Shakespeare in the first place. Like in Zattery, the first time they did King Lear in, 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 in Zattery refugee camp, um, I don't think that the director really understood what he was doing in terms of the way in which that would capture the imagination of the world's media. But it totally did, because the idea of Shakespeare in the refugee camp is a sexy one. Journalists love that stuff, man. They go out there, there's like hundreds of them. So I read about this in the New York Times, and then I go there a year later. But by this time, all the furore has died down, and the children are saying to me, you know, when can we do another play? So there's a little bit of heartbreak going on there. Um, you can watch scenes from the original version of this play online because they put a lot of it, um, they filmed it and, and they put a lot of it online themselves and they really own that story. But the next thing that that same director, Noir Bulbul, did was a Romeo and Juliet that was Skyped and I was part of that process from beginning to end. So what I did was I went out there when the rehearsals began, the children were cast, and then I just followed the process all the way through to the dissemination in the newspapers. Um, and the way that that one worked, and it was, it was just so moving. So the children who were in a hospice in downtown Amman in Jordan were the Romeo family. And through Skype, we connected with children who were in Homs, 
under siege in Syria who can't leave. And for three hours every day for around three months, we were Skyping to rehearse them in Homs using satellite phones because the Assad regime tracks internet. So we had to sort of find a way of making sure that they could do this without um, being tracked. And the kids, you know, I, was, I would be talking to them on Skype in this house that they were working in. And you know, you could hear the sniper fire behind them every day after school. They're like risking their lives to come to this house and rehearse this play, which they eventually put on in their own living room using you know, a sofa turned around as like a balcony. So, so you've got Julius and the sofa and so on. So that was the home situation. And, in, and then we, we put the two sides together for the three performances that took place. Um, the children didn't meet each other except on Skype. Every time the Skype connection cut out, it was because of a real-time live event. Um, and so, you know, this play took place. But that, I, I think I'm getting off your point a little bit, but the, the reason they carried on with the Shakespeare was because suddenly it was obvious that the world would t just take notice. And especially 2014 to 2016, when these two big commemoration years have been going on, um, there was there was so much interest, and it really did raise a lot about the humanity of people just doing theatre in tough situations. Um, in the Kosovo example I was telling you about, the reasons for doing Shakespeare were very different. It was neutral ground. They couldn't choose an Albanian playwright in an Albanian play. They couldn't choose a Serbian playwright in a Serbian play because the Albanian situation was, it was just still tense. Kosovo is still a post-conflict in some, some sense is a conflict zone. Um, there's still a UN, a U, a U, an EU presence there. Um, it's one of the world's longest-running administered regions. So to do Shakespeare gave a sort of sense of space that within this structure and with these plots and this language, these two sides could come together and, uh, and do some theatre that could go both to the National Theatre in Pristina and to the National Theatre in Belgrade. And that's the first time the two governments have actually collaborated on a piece of culture. And I think that really was because it was Shakespeare. Right. As a woman in this country, what do you see as the uh, biggest uh, ongoing battle for women's rights in this country? To get published. <laughs> to get published. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've, we're, getting, we're getting there, you know? We've already got rid of the tampon tax, and that's big. <laughs> that's big. It's a start to recognizing that bodies do body things. Um, as a woman in this country, I think it's always about gatekeepers. Who's deciding how we're to live? And what can we do and say into those spaces to make change? I teach in two different universities and I have young female students who feel cowed by the fact that they're paying a certain amount for their education so they shouldn't be doing certain subjects because they won't get jobs. Or they know that you know, they will be going into situations where they might not find equal pay and things. And I just find that Still, again, with this outrage, I want, to, I want to give them that sense of hope that they can make a difference in the world. Um, and they can only do that by becoming the gatekeepers. So I think that's really the greatest barrier. Okay, last question. There.
your presentation, but could I just ask you about the role of evil? Yep. Because what always strikes me when I read the Shakespearean Lear is the depiction of evil in different forms. Physical evil, psychological cruelty. There's an amazing panoply of evil, if you like, in Lear. And how have you incorporated that in your version in terms of differentiating the different horrible things that people do to one another? Yes. Well, uh, firstly, I, like I mentioned, there's a character who's gay. So he is living in a moment in 2012 where that was legal, but we know as readers that actually that didn't last. Um, my Sita character, who is Cordelia, she's, a, she's an environmental activist because of the kind of mythological links between Sita in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and, and the land. Um, she doesn't make it, you know, it's King Lear. Um, so there's a sort of environmental argument and a resource extraction argument there in the book. Um, the ways in which these people all see each other is part of the evil and the things that they take on and believe about each other because they've been separated, separated, separated and forced to compete with each other all the time for, for love, for money and so on and so on. I, I've probably missold this a bit because I'm quite a hopeful person and I'm an activist person, but it's a really dark book <laughs> and it does not end well. Yeah. <laughs> Without any spoilers. Well, on that cheerful note, <laughs> thank you, Preeti, thank you. and all the best. <laughs>